0: major lindsay in africa presents between the legal lines a podcast focused on leading women lawyers who have pushed beyond the boundaries and found success welcome to between the legal lines my name is andrea bricca and i am your host this podcast is a series of monthly interviews where we explore how women who happen to also be both executives and lawyers navigate the boundaries often placed upon them due to their role in demographics. These women have found success despite those sometimes very narrowly drawn lines that govern what is acceptable and what is not. And each month we hear a new story from a different woman about what that is like. Joining me today is Catherine, Kate, Carl. Kate is currently General Counsel and Chief Legal Officer of the Humane Society of the United States. Kate, welcome to Between the Legal Lines, and thank you for joining me today. Please tell us who you are, about your current role, and how you got there. Andrea, thank you so
1: much for having me here today. I'm really honored to be part of this important ongoing conversation. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm the general counsel and chief legal officer of the Humane Society of the United States. We're a charity. We focus on ending the cruelest practices towards all animals, caring for animals in crisis, and building a stronger animal protection movement altogether. So in other words, our rescue and direct care work responds to today's cruelties, and our education, policy, and capacity building efforts work to prevent tomorrows. Um, I'm lucky enough to oversee both our legal functions that we have. the traditional in-house work that everybody thinks about for a corporate in-house attorney, as well as our programmatic litigation and legislative development work. So I'm very lucky in the sense that I have both that traditional in-house lawyer um, role, but I also have a foot in the program, which is a very rewarding part of my job. Um, leading up to this, I've been fortunate in my career to work in government, in the private sector and the charitable sector. You know, before law school, I worked on Capitol Hill. For a couple years, which was an incredibly valuable experience. And then after law school, I worked at a law firm in a private practice, and I left private practice when the American Cancer Society, which was one of my clients, asked me to join their team. Has there been any one person particularly helpful for you in your career? You know, there isn't just one person. I am so fortunate to have had so many different people provide insights and guidance and feedback and a, a listening ear along the way. You know, One example that comes to mind about some of the incredibly valuable advice I've gotten over the years is when I was thinking about leaving private practice to go in-house, I was really concerned about, I, concerned about the fact that I was leaving the law firm too soon, that I needed more training, more experience before I left, and that I wasn't really ready to go in-house or I wasn't fully cooked yet. And I was talking about this internal debate with someone who was a mentor and who has since become a close friend of mine. And she said to me, she's like, Kate, wait a minute, you're telling me you need to spend a few more years training so you can later get the very job that's being offered to you right now. Um, this job won't be there then. And if they don't think you need more time before you're ready, why do you? And she was completely right. I took that job, and I'm really so glad I did. Um, but that moment was more pivotal in more ways than just you know taking that one job. She jolted me out of my thinking that I needed to be you know one hundred and ten percent ready to go before I took the next step. And I realized actually that I enjoy taking on jobs that are a stretch and even scare me a little bit. And that one conversation has had such a big impact on how I've approached my career ever since, you know, and that group of people that I've got around me, it's, it keeps growing, which is just uh, wonderful. Um, I'm so lucky that I continue to meet new folks who I get to turn to when I have a problem or challenge to work through. And, you know, honestly, I'm actually even grateful for the experience of uh, uh, experiences with people who, uh, shall we say, has been less than helpful, as I've learned a lot from those negative or hard experiences as well.
0: Very interesting. I like when people say they learn from the negative. They don't take it so, so hard. It it teaches them something. Um, Could you tell us about what it's like to work for a nonprofit like the Humane Society of the United States? Is it puppies and kittens every day? That's what I would imagine. (laughs) Well, that would be pretty great.
1: Um, You know, it's absolutely fulfilling to be part of the team working towards a mission that you believe in. You know, when I have a tough day and I see something amazing that we've done, like rescuing a dog from rising floodwaters or getting a huge legal victory that will improve the lives of thousands of animals, it can absolutely turn my day around. But I don't think that this connection to mission is actually limited to the nonprofit space. I imagine that my colleagues who work for for for-profits experience this as well when they're committed to the mission of their companies. And it's actually always been important to me that I believe in who I work for. That combined with interesting, challenging work is really what gets me excited about my job. So with each of my jobs in government, in private practice and nonprofits, I've really had that fulfilling connection to mission each time. And I have to say, we do allow dogs in our workplace. So when we were all in the office back in the before times, there actually were a lot of puppies around both young and old, you know, but, but even with all those dogs around, it isn't, puppies and kittens or, or koalas every day. Um, for one thing, charities are complex regulated entities. So we have many of the same challenges as for-profits, right? We've got tax, employment issues, litigation, real estate, contracts, board governance, just name of the few things that keep us going. Um, and actually one of the things I like most about my job is that I never know what the day is gonna bring. It's like taking one giant issue spotting exam, but on all the law school classes at once um and you know on top of that while we're facing all these complicated issues we don't have a lot of the resources that some for-profits do so we always have often have to make do more with less but that can be an interesting puzzle as well right we have to be creative to get the work done well another challenge i see with nonprofits is around expectations and that i see it coming up in sort of two different ways the first way is that sometimes folks think that because they're on the side of truth and light or in our case, um, puppies and koalas, they don't have to worry about any rules, right? That they're just, they're gonna, whatever they do must be right, because they're, they mean well. And so sometimes it can be a challenging to explain why they should actually listen to the lawyers. Um, you can work through this issue with the support of an executive team. You know, in my case, my CEO absolutely understands the importance of our legal work and business or programmatic savvy lawyers who can explain the why behind um, f- the importance of following the rules. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not over you know something you can't overcome, but you just have to be aware that this expectation about rules, sometimes not applying to charities, is, is, is sometimes there and you've got to deal with it. You know, the other challenge around expectations and working in nonprofits that I see is that sometimes I think some think that the workplace is going to be that puppies and kittens or koalas, and it's going to be some sort of nirvana because everyone is there to support the mission. So it's always going to be puppies and koalas or sunshine and rainbows. So when there are challenges or conflicts or constraints or things go wrong, which, you know, happens in any workplace, it can be especially hard for some folks to handle those down moments because they've imagined this organization as this perfect place and there really is no such thing.
0: You mentioned the dogs being in the office before COVID. Speaking of COVID, what have you learned about leadership from the COVID crisis?
1: You know, uh, I've learned so much over this past year on a whole host of things, right? From, from leadership to resilience. And I mean, it's just sort of the, the teachable moments just keep on coming. With respect to leadership, I, I, one of the things I keep reflecting on is that the, the fundamentals of leading and specifically leading through crisis haven't actually really changed, right? You stay calm, you learn as much as you can, you don't rush, but move deliberately. But obviously the tactics have to constantly shift in this, in this sort of constantly shifting um, COVID environment. At the macro level, what's been interesting to me is that everyone is going through this at the same time, but it's impacting organizations and individuals in dramatically different ways. And it's impacting our work lives and our home lives at the same time, but again, in different ways. And a year later, it's still going on. You know, this is not exactly the time horizon I initially expected, that's for sure. So since we're all in it, it's been a really interesting time to learn from others and to do that learning actually in real time you can get a good sense of an organization's fundamentals. Are they well resourced? Do they have a strategic approach to their work? What are their values? I mean, all those kinds of good questions. You know, and at the individual level, uh, you know, personally, I think the biggest lesson I've learned is how important it is to be intentional in your leadership. You know, even as simple as uh, a new employee's first day, you know, in the before times, as I like to call it, if, you know, that employee was going to work in the same office I was, I just tell him to meet me at 9 a.m. We do a walk around the office before getting them into the HR sessions. And it, that first day, we just all sort of magically work. And now I've really got to think about all the things that I'm actually sharing when I do that initial walk around. And it's so much more than just, you know, where's the kitchen or the water cooler? Um, or where's the CEO's office? You know, how do they meet members of the team? How do they meet those folks they might not, ever work with, but might enjoy getting to know how to get a sense of the culture or whether there's a particular person welcomes interruptions or whether that particular person would prefer you to schedule a time to meet and not knock on their door. So I've realized that I've really got to think about exactly what I'm doing and exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. And that need to be intentional has been an incredible lesson that I will definitely take with me, um, hopefully, as we move through this, uh, this moment in time.
0: What other impacts have you seen COVID have on the workplace, particularly those that impact women?
1: You know, COVID has been such a devastating time in so many ways. And I think one of the things that's made it particularly hard is that it is, it's impacted each of us in such different ways. You know, overall, COVID, we've all seen the data. COVID's had such an enormous impact on women in the workforce overall and magnified these existing inequities. You know more women than men have left the workforce altogether. Many women are still working, but pulling back, reducing hours, foregoing promotions or changing jobs altogether. something will give them more time to focus on other parts of their lives. You know, for those of us who are parents and especially moms, the lucky ones of us get to juggle parenting and remote schooling while working. You know, for some of us, those new responsibilities of caregiving, are added to additional work responsibilities, right? This Zoom day seems to just never end. Um, And that's that's the good story for the mom who's got a smaller income or a child with special needs or is an essential worker who can't leave her seven-year-old at home to do virtual school all by themselves. Leaving work could be her only choice. And then there's the women who aren't working, not because they've chosen to leave, but because their jobs no longer exist. I was looking at data from the end of last year, and women, particularly women of color, have lost more jobs than men because the hardest hit industries were those dominated by women. And finally, there's women who are still working, but who've lost a loved one, or maybe more than one to COVID. You know, because COVID's been you know, deadlier in communities of color, our colleagues of color are far more likely to have lost friends or family, and at the same time, may feel uncomfortable sharing their grief at work. So we've got all these different experiences throughout COVID, some these terrible tangible losses, some ambiguous loss, losses where we're not even sure what's gone but we know something is missing or just exacerbated old stressors. And at the same time, some have found these silver linings or even achieved new successes. And this imbalance in our individual experiences with a global crisis, you know, something that's happened to all of us but we've experienced in such different ways It's really tough and I worry that it's going to be, it's going to
0: make our path out of this even more complicated than it otherwise would be. As a woman in the workplace, what, if anything, do you wish you were freer to say or do at work? And if that is the case, why can't you? You know, that's a good question.
1: As I reflect on this and I I look at where I am at at my stage of my life and my career, I'm really grateful that I don't feel like I need to be freer, freer. To say or do any particular thing, and you know, it's my job to tell people what I think, right? I need to be clear when I'm giving legal advice and when I'm giving business advice. But I wouldn't be doing my job as an executive if I didn't say what I thought. I, you know, I might not always get my way, right? But I certainly get to say what I think. I that wasn't always the case for me. Um, You know, when I was younger, I didn't quite feel as free to just be. Um, part of that was where I was in my career, you know, with the positional power I had within the organization. Part of it was also where I was in my own development and figuring myself out. and And part of it was honestly external factors. You know, for example, when I was pregnant with my kids, I didn't love sharing the news that I was pregnant because it I was just I was uncomfortable about it. I didn't like bringing that part of my personal life into work. And I was concerned about what it might mean for projects I was working on at the time. And now where I am in my career, I work really hard to try and build an atmosphere where my team members don't feel those sorts of constraints. Obviously, they don't have to share personal news if they don't want to, but they they, they certainly can if it works for them. And the, one of the many ways, one of the many things I do is I try and be honest about what I'm doing, right? When I have to take time off to go to the dentist or in today's world, take a break to help my youngest with her virtual school IT issue of the moment. Or frankly, if I just need to take off, um, a day to just recharge and recenter and and come back um, refreshed and ready to take on the day again.
0: You mentioned constraints. What has been stronger, the restraints you've placed upon yourself or restrictions placed upon you by other people? You know, that's such a tough question because I'm I'm not sure I can unpack
1: whether the restrictions I've placed on myself are inherent in who I am or if they're product of the society in which I've grown up, I, I, I probably could noodle that for, for days and never really come to a true answer. You know, earlier in my career, I definitely struggled with that imposter syndrome that you hear people talk about, right? Like at any moment, folks were gonna figure out that I wasn't all that great. They were gonna take my law degree away and tell me to go do something else. Thank you very much. It's been nice, <laughs> but you need to leave now. Um, and and tied to that, I I always, I also really worried about coming across as too bossy. You know, I, I couldn't quite figure out my tone um, in a way that I felt comfortable with. And as I've grown and developed in my career, I've, I've developed confidence in myself and my voice. I can't really point to any one thing that helped me sort that all out. It's, de- it's definitely still a work in progress, but it's so freeing not to have those worries dominate my thinking. Now, in addition to that sort of internal monologue I had going on in my head a lot when I was younger, I, without question, have definitely experienced those moments where I was absolutely treated differently because I was a woman and not taken as seriously. You know, one of the more, I guess, lighthearted experiences with bias, if one could ever have a lighthearted bias experience, um, was early on in my career. I was negotiating one one of my first contracts. I was really nervous. It was not an area of law that I was, you know, had known really well. And I, I just, I, I was. This was the thing I was going to do. I was going to tackle. It was going to be great. And the lawyer on the other side, and I come to find out, he was also a young lawyer, was talking down to me throughout the entire conversation. And at one point, he even called me a smart cookie. You know what? And and you know ultimately in that situation, I was able to use the fact that he had underestimated me to get a better deal for my client. But what I really remember most about that moment was how lucky I was to have colleagues around me who recognized immediately what was going on and how out of touch he was. That his tone and condescension didn't have anything to do with whether or not I was a good lawyer. So rather than me having to go off and sit in my corner all by myself and worry that I had somehow messed up something in one of my first contract negotiations, we all had a good laugh about him instead. You know, one colleague shared war stories about her first contract negotiation and sent me a cartoon from the New Yorker um, that I actually still have. And, you know, another colleague later gave me a giant cookie to honor that moment. So we were able to take something that could have been, uh, you know, really hard, but because I had great people around me to make me understand what was really going on, it turned into a memorable moment that I look back and reflect on fondly because I think of my colleagues, not that lawyer who decided
0: he wanted to refer to me as a smart cookie. I can tell from your responses, just your great attitude when things aren't going great have served you well in your career. And that that's a wonderful thing. And I think people can learn from that. Speaking of learning from something, Understanding that compensation is a bit different in the nonprofit sector, data does continue to show a gender pay gap across the board for most legal roles, particularly the GC role. Do you have any thoughts on how we can close that gap going forward? And also, how do we get more women into the GC seat?
1: Well, you know, compensation certainly is different in nonprofits, it's uh, just a bit smaller. Um, But that being said, it's still critically important that we work to reduce the pay gaps for both women and people of color in the nonprofit sector. You know, honestly, the real work is that that macro or societal level, you know, structural changes are going to have the most impact on these pay equity issues. But the reality is that this unconscious or, or frankly conscious bias isn't going away overnight. So at the individual level, all the same advice about negotiating compensation that you hear in the for-profit world, applies equally in the nonprofit space. The numbers just aren't as big, right? There's just not as many zeros at the end. So do your homework, get the data, and ask for what you're worth. And but when you're figuring out what you're worth, just make sure you haven't undervalued yourself, right? Make go go to your go to your colleagues and, and and kick the tires on on your estimations. The one additional piece of advice I would give to women negotiating around salary at a nonprofit organization is. Don't let the narrative about wanting more money to go to mission distract you. Um, you know, investing in you is an investment in the mission. Um, even as one of the lawyers, and you deserve to be paid fairly. You know, as for getting more women into the GCC, that's really on all of us. We've got to hire diverse teams and continually invest in them, giving them opportunities to grow, creating an inclusive environment, getting them in front of the C-suite and the rest of the board. Um, get them good experience running meetings and giving presentations and offer as many training opportunities about leadership and management as CLEs on data privacy and indemnification clauses that we all know
0: and love. What advice would you offer to other ambitious women about workplace behavior?
1: You know, that's such an interesting question. I think the first thing I'd say is to figure out what ambition means to you. There isn't one right path or even one right destination. Maybe you want to be the youngest GC ever, um, or maybe you don't ever want to be GC and and your goal is instead to work in multiple industries or all over the world. Or maybe you want to change the world and you don't care uh, at all what your title is as long as you're having an impact. Or maybe you want to make a fortune as fast as possible as you can retire early. Or, Or maybe you want to be this exceptional lawyer from nine to five, but have time to take on other things outside of work. And expect that what you want and, and, and how you want to get there may change over time. And the second thing I'd say is, you know, there's a lot of advice out there about navigating the working world. And I, I, what I think is most important is that you figure out what advice or parts of it work for both who you are at work and what your goals are. You know, one tactic work, may work great for someone else, but it just may not fit with your approach or, or your style um, and, and what, you bring, what you bring to work. You know, related to that, I, I recommend thinking through about how you and I—I I mean, you—I mean, you—not someone else—might react when you run across those stereotypical situations you're likely to face. You know, when that opposing counsel called me a smart cookie, I was so taken aback, feeling like it's just a line straight out of straight out of a movie, and that it couldn't possibly be happening. I was like standing aside by beside of myself, going, "Did he really just say that?" And and I so I had no idea how to respond in that moment because I couldn't believe somebody would actually say it. So uh, my advice is to think about what you would do if someone takes your idea at a meeting and presents it as, as theirs or how you'll react if you're you're told you're being too emotional when arguing for your position. you know hopefully these situations won't ever come up and, and these tactics and your one-liners that you'll have in your back pocket won't be necessary but you'll be prepared if, if, if they if these situations do arise And finally, I think this is what's been the most important thing for me is getting that good group of people around you, you know, that personal board of directors who you can call on for advice. I, I can't emphasize enough how I would not be where I am today. Not it's not even a question um, without the support I have of the the village around me. You know, their perspective and strength really takes me through those challenging times and and helps you continue to grow. And, you know, you, you might even get a giant cookie out of it.
0: we hopefully we all get a giant cookie at some point in time just to make us feel better right exactly kate thank you so much for joining me today this has been between the legal lines where you have just heard from kate carl general counsel and chief legal officer of the humane society of the united states I am Andrea Bricka from Major Lindsay and Africa. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for a new story from another woman successfully operating between the legal lines. If you have a story that you would like to share, please contact me at abricca at mlaglobal.com. Thank you. Discover how Major Lindsay and Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.